0: I'm just back from attending my ninth National Speakers Association conference, and I'm getting ready to attend my first National LGBT Chamber of Commerce conference next month. Because the NSA event was held in Florida, and I'm a trans man, I debated whether or not to attend. In the end, I decided to go. I was looking forward to seeing my friends, and I also organized the LGBT and allies affinity group, and thought it was important to increase the visibility of those who share my values. We gave out rainbow bracelets and lapel pins. I got to wear my newly custom-designed rainbow chucks. It was a great event. Despite the LGBT Chamber Conference being held in Denver and therefore avoiding the political and safety issue, there was a lot to consider before committing to attending a new conference. How will this benefit my business? What will I learn? Who will I meet? Who do I already know who's going? Do I want to risk exposure to getting COVID again? This last one is a new concern that creeps up even as I get excited about seeing people in person again. In the end, I decided to go to both conferences. I've been a certified LGBT business enterprise for a couple of years, and I haven't taken full advantage of what that entails. Now that I have a highly regarded new book, Breakout of Boredom, which is all about leveraging Zoom to design transformative, inclusive and engaging online experiences, it seems like the right moment to rub elbows with decision makers. Wish me luck. What factors go into deciding whether or not you should attend an in-person event? Are you concerned about the networking aspect? You could read my first book, Croissants vs. Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. You'll find the book and the bonus content at croissantsvsbagels.com. That's croissantsvsbagels.com. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest went from a successful data scientist at a bustling San Francisco startup in 2016 to a captivating personal branding photographer in New York City. He's lived a life of transformation and authenticity. His life-altering moment, his then-wife of eight years revealed her true self as a transgender man. This prompted the question, what do I need to change to feel true to myself? He found his answer in photography. As a personal branding photographer, he helps speakers, coaches, and solopreneurs feel safe to express themselves fully on camera. He's a proponent of the idea that your genuine self is key to attracting your perfect clients. He's an expert in conveying your unique story through photos. In the time it takes to read a text or watch a video, the human brain can process an image and its story in a fraction of a second. But he's not about making you fit into a pre existing box for a photo shoot. Instead, he wants you to explore and embrace your identity, helping you visualize your ideal future self. Please join me in welcoming Raj Bandyapadhyay. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited about this conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us from your place in Toronto. You're in the middle of an international move. I can't imagine the stress of doing that. I'm glad you're still able to make this happen. This is a show about building strong networks, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: Thank you. That's uh, That's an interesting question because of my journey. When I saw this question as part of the prep for this podcast, I was like, I have a very different way of thinking about leadership now that I'm a solo entrepreneur versus when I worked in the corporate world. But I think that the common thread I found is that being a leader is seeing that something new is possible and bringing other people along on that vision. That can be either from one end being inspirational, inspiring other people, or actually tactical, like bringing other people as you execute that vision
0: seeing what's possible, and then bringing others along on that vision and that journey. I, I love that. When did you start to realize you had some of those skills?
1: So in the corporate world, I would say one of the pivotal experiences in leadership I had was back in 2012. I was uh, a software engineer in, in, a, in, a, in a tech company in Atlanta, and uh, I wanted to transition to a career in data science, which was a very hot, sexy, upcoming field then. Uh, and I was trying to figure out, I mean, Atlanta wasn't, I mean, it's more of a tech hub today, but it wasn't like Silicon Valley. It wasn't like, you know, the, the place where things happened for the first time. And so I was like, okay, who are the people interested in this thing? And I struggled to find people. And then I was like, you know what, maybe it would be fun to just find the people who are interested in data science and start doing some things together. And that ended up being this huge meetup called Data Science Meetup with uh, Atlanta, which I started from scratch. It's still around until, you know, I handed it over to other people in 2014, but I grew it from basically scratch to like 2,000 members and, you know, with monthly meetups and all of that. And that was the first time, Then you know, the lesson I drew from that is sometimes if you don't have the community you need, you might just have to build it yourself.
0: What year was but it that you started the meetup?
1: That was... 2012. And then I handed it off in 2014. That's quick. So
0: in two years, you grew to 2,000 members. Wow.
1: Yeah, because it was a very, you know, in-demand field at that time. It was kind of the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. for that. And then today, uh, you know, when, when, when you asked this question, I was like, how do I think about leadership as a solo entrepreneur, right? Because I'm not working in teams. I'm not leading teams in the traditional way. But I realized that even today as a solo entrepreneur, I do lead in certain ways. And the first way I realized I lead, just based on how people talk to me, is through my through my life experience and leading by example of like trans, you know, uh, transforming from being, you know, somebody in corporate, a data scientist to a solo entrepreneur, a creative entrepreneur. That's something a lot of people want to do, or at least dream of it. And so that's one way. They tell me that i'm I'm leading, and the second way i I find myself leading is often the way I lead my clients through their own kind of journey of discovery through the way I work with them in my photo shoots so it's a different way of leading, but I still think it falls into that uh that definition of leadership that I just gave you
0: I really appreciated the sort of nuanced way you're you're splitting up, you know, the more corporate formal role of leadership within teams and how you're leading by example, leading by your, your experience nowadays. I'm curious though, kind of who you've been in the past, because yeah. a lot of times, you know, looking back, it, it makes more sense than, uh, than when you're living a life sometimes feels a little more like a uh, pieces yeah. that are thrown at you you're building the road as you're on it. But what were you like Raj, as a kid, like on the playground, uh, where'd you grow up? And what were you like those early years? Were you were you organizing kids back then, or were you kind of holding back? Were you, what was your style? No,
1: like? actually, not. I grew up in Mumbai, India, and uh, if you've ever been in that part of the world, it's a big, crowded city, and uh, you know, I think it's a uh, 25 to 30 million people on a small island. I grew up, I would say, in a pretty middle class family. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a chemical engineer uh, working in a factory, and I grew up in a you know 400 square foot apartment with my parents i'm the only I'm, I'm the only child and from from the beginning i i was kind of a nerd i enjoyed reading i was like more into studying and all of that and so pretty much by age 5 my parents were like oh he's going to become an engineer and go to india's top engineering school like his life is decided and so uh i I don't know if you're familiar with the stereotypical, you know, tiger mom, Asian tiger mom kind of stereotype, but that's kind of what uh, it was for me. So there's a lot of like, and I I was good at it. I was a very good student. I was really smart. I definitely wasn't uh, very social. Uh, I did go out and play a little bit, but not that much. I wasn't particularly even interested in it. And so... I guess that also, like you know, in in I realize today that I'm I'm very much an introvert. Like I'm I'm not shy. I can have conversations, but I need a lot of alone, alone time. And so, I grew up in that environment where eventually I did end up in one of India's top engineering schools in 1996. Did computer science, and then uh, you know came to the U.S. for grad school after.
0: Yeah, I mean that path. It seems like it was laid out for you at a very young age. There was a very clear linear, like do all these steps and it happened that you enjoyed and did well. You excelled at those steps. Um, so it, it was a good fit in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, just, it's just sort of interesting because you also clearly have this very creative side of you that was being maybe even suppressed a little bit in like the the more analytical engineer side of your brain was being really appreciated, uh, valued, you know, celebrated at, at that time Um, and socially it sounds like, uh, you know, my wife is a shy extrovert. Uh, so yeah, you know, she likes being around people, but you wouldn't know she was there. And I've also dated outgoing introverts, people who are, have no problem being like out and social, but they need a lot of recovery and alone time. Uh, so there, there are kind of different scales and it sounds like you're not necessarily shy, um, but you also reserve your energy for the things that matter most yep. to you. So
1: I agree. That would fit.
0: Yeah. So what year did you come to the States for grad school? It sounds like it was around 2000.
1: Yeah. I graduated in 2000. Then I came to uh, grad school at Rice University in Houston, Texas.
0: That's a big decision. I mean, mm-hmm. what led to, to making a decision to leave um, home and, and head over to the States?
1: So complicated, but... Based up, it was there were a bunch of factors there. One is I, I did feel like, even as a kid, because I used to read so much. I, you know, I read a lot of stuff for, from, you know, for about every, you know, culture, books around the world, from around the world, and all of that, and it really aligned with many aspects of like uh, what I, what you think of as a free, liberal kind of society, Westernized society. And so I really did want to get out of, of India and, you know, in the particular kind of conservative way I grew up and experience more diversity, more, you know, different cultures of the world and so on. And also, you know, having a background in tech or having an undergrad in tech meant that at that time, at least, if you wanted to really have a, a great career, you were going to the U.S. because that was the center for, for tech uh, so it was a it was a it was a combination of factors. Some of it was like getting away from where I was, and then also being driven towards uh, towards something else. And, and then grad school, I think, partly was basically I didn't really have a you know you just mentioned it right like it felt like you know the the path was laid out for me, and there were a lot of things about b- myself that I had to suppress. But at that point, I didn't even know I was doing that. I was like. Okay, this is what I have to do. But I didn't have a clear sense of direction like, oh, this is I'm something this is something I'm absolutely passionate about. This is the kind of job I'm passionate about, a company or or career path. So grad school also became kind of a default kind of uh, landing place to like figure out a little bit more about my life.
0: Uh, I have a master's in social work for the same reason. <laughs> yeah.
1: Good on you for getting out after a master's.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you, you do a thing. So huge shifts happened because of this decision. Again, like a path was laid out at five years old. Grad school sort of was was part of that, but it also gave you a chance to experience, as you described, like a more liberal space um, because that was the worldview that you were interested in in exploring. Um, which was different than the in, in contrast, the more conservative space you had grown up in, a more traditional space, perhaps you might describe it as. And uh, I imagine you also then met like a wide array of people. Yeah. Did, did you know LGBT people in India?
1: No, no, strangely enough, it wasn't even on my radar then. I didn't even know. it's, And maybe I was very sheltered, I guess, in, in India, but even in college. and And, and then I went to a college, uh, this is called the Indian Indian Institute of Technology, IIT. It's very prestigious, all of that. But at that time, and I don't think it has changed a lot, but it was like 95% male. And it was very competitive. You're always just, you know, focused on grades and like, you know, getting your next thing. So I didn't even like look that much into dating and relationships, et cetera, at that time. And the idea of like, that people could be gay or like homosexuality or LGBT stuff was just not on my radar in India. It just wasn't a thing that I knew even existed. And I know it seems very strange now, but uh, it's like, and then when I got to, the, got to the US in grad school, like that, you're right, it gave me this opportunity to connect with a lot of different kinds of people from around the world. And that's when I started meeting people who are, uh, LGBT in different kinds who had, you know, different kinds of relationships, like, you know, they were experimenting with open relationships and things like that. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is like, I have, I have, you know, there, there's definitely many, many more ways to live than I thought.
0: It must have been so interesting given the, you know, you had no preparation for that. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you had, you had sort of been given one way to be, yeah. that was like all you knew. And then that way explodes into a myriad of opportunities.
1: Yeah. And I wonder about that. I wonder why like I I didn't feel threatened by it or I didn't feel like, you know, like a lot of people when they get exposed to that stuff for the first time, their reaction is to like kind of draw back and be like, oh, this is all bad. Like I'm going to run away. Whereas I was more like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, you know, I don't know if this is, These are things that I would want to do myself, but at least it's like cool to see people doing these different things. And I don't quite know why that difference exists. I think, you know, maybe some of it is personal nature, but also I think even though I was brought up very conservative or traditional in some ways, my parents were not really religious in any particular way. It was more like just, you know, study hard and do your thing. That's all we want from you. We don't need you to like, you know, worry about anything else. And so in some sense, when I got to the U.S. and started seeing all these people in grad school, I was kind of a blank slate around the morality of those things. So I got to kind of make my own judgments around them rather than kind of, you know, having a lot of programming built in. Maybe that's part of the factor there.
0: That actually makes sense because the preconceived notions really weren't there. And you were also meeting people, not concepts, right? You weren't being told about a thing. You were meeting a person and hearing about their lived experience with that identity or that relationship. And so Mm. the relationship piece may have also kind of helped base your reaction a little bit differently. Exactly. Um, Yeah, the blank slate uh, definitely makes sense too because you weren't already pre-programmed to believe a certain thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of interesting to explore in the sense that you know, the cultural clash that often happens and how people do like the, the angst of not knowing something and how that com- comes across in like a, oh, that's bad or I can't interact. But that didn't happen for you. Um, you get through grad school. Do you, do you then go get a job? You know, you start pursuing that whole career path. At what point yeah. um, do you end up with your partner?
1: So I met I met my partner at the at towards the end of grad school. I was finishing up my PhD in computer science, and he was finishing up a degree in a bachelor's in cultural anthropology. We met through mutual friends, and uh, yeah, like we kind of graduated at you know together at the same ceremony and stuff. And then uh, I had a job lined up in in Atlanta as in a in a tech company in a startup as a software engineer. And then he uh got into a PhD program at uh Georgia Tech in public policy. So we moved uh moved to Atlanta. But even then at that point, I was still kind of following the path like that yeah. had been laid out. I didn't I think somewhere inside I just thought it was too late to change anything. I was in my late twenties. I was like, oh, I have like, you know, a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD in computer science. I and mean, what else am I gonna do now? It's like I don't wanna throw all this away. Uh so it was just like another, the next step in that default for me.
0: But you moved together on purpose. Like this wasn't like happenstance yeah. that you ended up in the same state.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. We moved yeah. together on purpose.
0: Yeah. So um, it, it's really interesting because you probably weren't being very reflective about the path that you were on. It sounds like it, it was, you were doing good. You you were, you, you were doing well in the work you were doing, which yeah. in itself was the reward you were told to seek, like yeah. as for your parents, like, it was about getting the right grades or getting the right promotions or get doing the right job. It wasn't a fulfillment.
1: Exactly. And I didn't even honestly know that fulfillment is a thing. Like that's, (laughs) uh, it's, I know it sounds weird again. It's like, now going I say it today, it's like, I wasn't aware of that emotion. It's like, yeah, that's not something you care about. Right. Like it's like, especially if you grow up in a very social driven culture, like, like India or most Asian cultures, which are not very individualistic, you are doing things for the good of your family or society as a whole. The thing you're supposed to, and that is supposed to bring you the, the fulfillment. Like, you know, you get the good grades, you get the, all of that, you get a good job, and then follow that path and you support, peer, you know, your family. And that's, 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 that's your duty. Cultures often have
0: uh, phrases yeah, that keep people in line too. And I don't remember the exact one, but there are ones about like, you know, you don't want to be, the one that's sticking your neck out yeah. of the crowd, right? Like, like, yeah. you know, if you, if you, if you puff yourself up too much and you're too much about me and your individuality, like yeah. the, the culture kind of goes, tamps you back down and puts you back in your place, which is very not the way Americans are raised. right? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so you, I'm, it kind of makes sense. Like you have like a worldview that you brought into this space and you weren't questioning any of it. Um, I know that you're, your turning point was some conversations that you had with with your then wife, now husband. Um, And were either of you connected to an LGBT community at that point? Was that even like, I mean, I know you had met some people in college, but were they in your social circle? Was there like a space where some of that was happening or was this again kind of an over there and then you were just like living your, you know, living your life?
1: So at that time it was a bit of like over there and us living our life. Like when we got Married, we dated for about two years and then got married in Atlanta. Uh, And we, at that time, just looked like any other like monogamous, hetero couple, right? And we, so we didn't really think that it'd be much different from that. My partner did come out to me as bisexual pretty much on our second date. So I knew that that was a thing, but it was still a thing in the abstract. It wasn't something that was like affecting our life on a on a day to day day basis, and then, yeah. given that you know I had met so many LGBT people in in grad school and had friends and stuff, that didn't really bother me. I was like, okay, whatever, it's it's a thing. Uh, I think things really started changing for us uh, when we started exploring a bit of like open relationship stuff on our own in Atlanta because my partner was like, at that point, look, I want to explore this with other people. I need, I need, you know, to explore particularly with other women. And at that time, again, I had heard about such things in grad school. and knew people in grad school who were like, so it didn't really freak me out. It was like, okay, I mean, this is going to be fun or interesting to see how it goes. And we had some good experiences at the beginning uh, and also some challenging ones through that. But we, we gradually started exploring more and more, even in Atlanta. But... At that time, at least, and I think it's still true. Like Atlanta is not the most open of places to explore that sort of thing, and so we kind of struggled because we didn't really have a community. We didn't know how to talk about it to other people. We did try talking about it to some friends, and we lost some friends because they thought we were like too, too freaky. So it was it was it was a difficult and and challenging challenging time both for us as a, in a relationship as well as uh, you know just with friends and building building community in Atlanta then after my partner graduated he got a job in uh, in san francisco at a tech company uh, doing user research and then i i was you know i i was working for a startup in atlanta i, I decided to move to san francisco because anyway that 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 you know if you have a tech career that definitely you know aligns with anything you might want to do in tech and so we basically ended up moving to san francisco in in 2014 15 and that's when things started getting really kind of intense around yeah. everything.
0: I just want to say, again, you're such an interesting perspective, how, how you're reacting, like your cultural upbringing uh, and, you know, your, the tr- traditional way that you were sort of brought up. And then you're being, you know, there's this way you're meeting all these people in, you know, grad school, but it's still not about your life, right? It's about uh, how other people yeah. live. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. You know, but like you're not threatened because it's not actually about you. It's about the yeah. people that you know, and that's that's fine. You know, these people are doing their thing, and then even like you know, someone tells you on the second date they're bisexual, and you're like, yeah, but you know, but you're dating me, you know, and and in your mind, like monogamy is sort of a default, so yeah, that's the exactly. assumption. You know, so um, none of these things were about you until you both started to explore this idea mm-hmm. of having things be more open, and your response still seems to be oh, this is interesting. Well, let's see how this happens. I'm sure we'll learn something. Like, again, like fascinating your reaction given like you weren't, if you had been raised in San Francisco, I might have been like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, by chance, you both end up in the mecca for both the world of tech, but also for a lot more freedom around yeah. sexual and gender identity and exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have community there, like, like it's yeah. much easier to find spaces to connect in that way. Um, so that's 2015 or so, Yeah, uh, it's now 2023 as we record this. So you, and you two had been together for about eight years at the point where, you know, things really started to bubble up. How did it shift from, you know, I'm bisexual, let's explore an open relationship to like gender identity being part of the conversation. Yep.
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely going to relay what I've heard from my partner about this. So because I can't speak for him, but the way I perceived the journey was uh, that we got to San Francisco. We both kind of started, you know, we immediately started finding community. But he was a much he was much more a natural at ex- at getting into that community. Uh, for me, as you said, it was just like at that point it was still like an abstract thing. It's like all right, we're kind of playing around a little bit. All right, w- whatever. But for him, it was much more of a draw. It was like, oh, like there are all these queer people here. they are trans people here. They're like poly, kinky, all kinds of people here. Like I want to explore all that. And so he started exploring all that much more seriously. And I kind of, for a bit, was kind of dragged along kicking and screaming to this stuff. I was just like, oh my God, this is a lot in a very short time. I didn't even, that's when it really hit me that the menu of options to explore in sexuality, gender relationships is much bigger than i had ever thought it possible. And that was a ch- uh, exciting, but also very challenging.
0: Yeah, I was wondering when the proverbial uh, hits the fan, because right. you, you know, it had been like at arm's length this whole time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really about you, and and it, it's almost like this libertarian point of view, like, yeah. you know, cool on you, but like, you know, I'm over here chilling, and yeah. then it's a really because you love the person you're with, and they're so deeply invested in exploring this, you're sort of brought along with it, um, and, you know, I, I transitioned while dating someone they mm-hmm. knew on our first date that, you know, like they were actually very, she was very knowledgeable about trans people mm. and she had friends who were trans who's, you know, she's part of the queer community and she asked me my pronouns and I mm. said, call it like you see it. Cause that was where I was at the time about it. I was right. like, you know, I didn't feel definitively like it had to be a thing. I was very much like having fun with it. Mm. And so, you know, it wasn't like out of nowhere, but then when it finally came for me to say like, this is a thing I'm going to move forward with. That's when it, like you, like that moment of it hits the fan. Like that's when yeah. all of her personal feelings, like in abstract, she was completely yeah. comfortable with it, celebrate, support people, right. You know, close friends, all of the rest. And then it was about her and like the concerns that she might have about what happens yeah. next. And so I could totally understand like you could be someone who's like I'm fine with this and then still have that moment of like it's it's about integrating a new identity because now yeah. it's about how you relate to all of this oh, and yeah. not just other people. So it seems like you didn't stay stuck there for long. <laughs> and neither did my yeah. then partner either.
1: Um Yeah, so I think I think what I realized then was like I you know, I had that instinctive reaction of like okay, I'm done with this. This is too much. But I was also like, if I if I stop this now, if I stop exploring this now, then I'm doing making a decision out of fear. I'm making a, it's not an informed decision. It's like I'm afraid of this new stuff and so I'm I'm running away from it. Whereas I think my decision-making process typically is always like, I want to at least learn more about something and make an informed decision of whether it's actually right. Right. And and so and I and I was curious, I was curious about that world. So what happened then, and to cut a long story short, I, I ended up finding a sec, the whole world of sex and relationship coaches. I mean, San Francisco is amazing that way. There are a lot of community resources and support for people exploring alternative identities, relationship structures, and so on. So I ended up like working with a sex and relationship coach and for the first time actually exploring what did I really want in sex? What did I really want in marriage? Which is something we take for granted in society especially if you have grown up you know hetero like heteronormative you just you just take that you know there's nothing you know that' this is this is how what sex is this is what marriage is this is what your gender role is everything is assigned and then working with a sex and relationship coach was for the first time helped me question those things and be like oh there is a whole menu out there out of there and I can actually construct the relationships that I the kind of relationship that I want so what would it be? If I, if I did.
0: That's fascinating. I love that you sought that resource out. And I love that instead of, in fact, when you started to react out of fear, you then said, no, no, no. My, my go-to is to learn. So yeah. like, I don't, because I'm fearful, that ma- means there's more for me to learn that you sort of like gut checked yourself when you saw you, you were stepping away. You were like, wait, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't do that, like learn. And then you have the resources to go explore what that meant for you. And what you just said about all those things being assigned to us, yeah. our gender roles and expectations, like how a marriage is supposed to be or a relationship is supposed to be, like um, all these things, like our, our, our sex assigned at birth, right? All these things are assigned to us and all the meaning, right? Like it's not yeah. just the assignment, but it's like all the me- meaning um, traditionally imposed on us, Yeah, most straight, uh, cisgender guys never, ever, ever, ever have the opportunity to even have a moment of introspection about any of that. And because of your circumstances, you did and you chose to do the exploration the and self-work. And then that meant that it wasn't just about you tagging along. That's what yeah. shifted. You weren't right. being brought in. You were now doing your own exploration and your own self-discovery. And that that to me is a healthy relationship right there. Even if it doesn't work out in the long ter- term, you two, you know, like you're both doing something as opposed to one dragging. So
1: yeah, yeah. That totally shifted the dynamic over the next uh, couple of years. So from like 2015 through 2016. Uh, It was a lot of my work discovering my own sexuality with my sex and relationship coach and exploring these kinds of questions. And then eventually she also helped my partner and me kind of come to like find the kind of open poly kind of arrangement that has since then worked for us very well. But it needed that both the individual work and the coming together and doing work Mm -hmm. as a couple to get to that point.
0: So now it makes more sense that the point that your then wife says, this isn't how I identify anymore. You were ready to receive that information. Yeah. Yeah. Like you had done a lot of work to be at that place. Yeah. And the poly world, the kink world, the like queer like world was almost just a way for you to be ready for that really important, very personal conversation.
1: Yeah. I, I, I I completely agree. It's like, well, there's a yes and no to it. Uh, the, as I was doing this work, my partner was also exploring his, he started exploring the uh, the gender identity piece too, like initially identifying as non-binary, which was the word genderqueer was very popular there back then, yeah, uh, but using they, them pronouns and, ex- like, uh, and experimenting with that. So when he came out as, as trans, it was, wasn't a complete surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but then it was still like, oh, this is another big change and this will, you know, this is something to process. And what was challenged? a couple of things that that were challenging for me at that time. One was uh, recognizing the difference between my like individual versus a social identity. Like I remember one of the, you know, right after he came out, we were on a trip where we were traveling in Spain and then took a side trip to Morocco. And, we were on this little plane from Sevilla to Marrakesh and where at some point I had just had this realization like, oh, if my partner transitions and then starts doing like medical transitioning, a couple of years from now, we're going to be perceived as a, as a gay couple traveling in a Muslim country. I, that is something I have to be ready for, <laughs> right? And I wasn't ready for that. I mean, again, you know, an abstract thing kind of coming into my life and suddenly becoming concrete. So for me, that was one of the challenges, like, how am I ready to be perceived in many contexts as a, as a gay man suddenly because of my partner's change? And that was an interesting exploration uh, for me. The second challenge that I, that I had to deal with was there aren't, I don't know if it has changed now, but at least back then in 2017 or so, there, there's, there aren't a lot of resources for partners of transitioning. Uh, people people who come out as transgender and transition partners or families on how to navigate that and so i wasn't finding a lot of support for for myself there was a lot of support around like my partner's transition and being like yeah like you know go for it everyone's like you know waving all the rainbow flags and stuff but finding that for me was was a little bit hard and that was something that i had to kind of create for myself
0: from my experience, uh, the support that I have seen in this context has actually been for the wives of mm. men who cross-dress or wives of men who, who then actually transition from male to female. Yeah. Uh, and there's a slightly different communities. Sometimes there's an overlap, but um, there seems to be much more organized support for those spaces. And I can't think of, and if there is one, I hope someone reaches out so we can put it in the show notes, an organization helping husbands through the transition, the gender transition of their then wife to their now husband. Yeah. Um, and so even the, even the articles have been written and the books have been written have, yeah. par- have often been from the perspective of the husband is the one who had the gender transition to yeah. the now wife yeah. and the couple stays together. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, the book, she's not there, Jenny,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: I just lost her last name, but yeah. So I'll put that, put in there too. So it's a great memoir that she wrote about how her yeah. relationship sort of reacted to this moment, but it's, it's hard to think of like, and that's true now. <laughs> so I yeah. so like, you know, seven, 10 years ago, uh, very much so. Um, but you continued this exploration because it went beyond just like how you're going to be perceived as a yeah. couple and individually. But you started to question the path that you're on which is why right you know i wanted to spend some time on that path that we discussed earlier yeah this i feel like what you're describing in in like the introduction that i shared is is a very queer uh it's a very queer identity in the sense yeah. that once you question the assignments and, and expectations yeah. that are placed on you for any one part of your life your sexuality the paradigm of your relationship your gender once you explore any of those things suddenly you realize it's all made up yeah. <laughs> and you go well what do i actually want and so it makes yeah. sense that that then led for you to explore what you wanted in in a job or or a, a vocation yeah. um so it, it's like on the on the abstract it's like well how does one thing relate to the other but it's like oh of course like it, you exploded the sense of who you were so how yeah. did that Shift happened for you yeah. because you stepped off like a very steady train, yeah, <laughs> to an unknown. And
1: I think it was it was going to happen at some point or the other because, as you said, you know, like even even before college and that path that had had been laid out for me. You you just mentioned this. That I probably had to suppress a lot about myself in order to follow that, you know, analytical kind of uh, tech driven path and all of that. You know, at some ho- some point, the chickens have to come home to roost. So, but this was, this whole exploration with my partner was what kind of cracked that shell open, uh, finally. But, you know, as part of this whole exploration of like my sexuality and our exploration of relationship, one of the things I was doing was working with a sex and relationship coach. And uh, what you do a lot of with a sex and relationship coach is really kind of learn to connect with your own desires, mostly in, an, in sex and relationships, your desires and your boundaries, I think most of us, especially, you know, straight people who've told what, you know, their entire lives, what they're supposed to want and expect, never really get to con- make that connection. It's like, what am I feeling? And how does that relate to what I want, what I don't want? How do I communicate that? How do I articulate that? All of that exploration. And when you learn to connect with your desires in, and boundaries in one aspect of your life and recognize those feelings, it shows up everywhere else. It's like, I go to work and I'm like, this project does not turn me on at all. This (laughs) leaves me feeling dead inside. This project feels absolutely wrong in my body. Uh, Stuff like that. And then also starting to notice at the same time, photography, which was just kind of a hobby back then, is like, this really lights me up on the inside. I really enjoy it, even if the photos turn out absolutely horrible. Uh, And so that was kind of of at at a granular level that was happening, like noticing every day like the same kinds of exploration that I was doing in my relationship and in my sexuality around like, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I, I'm a yes to what I'm a no to. And then coming into work and being like, Oh, this is the aspect of work. I like, or that turns me on. This is an aspect that does not turn me on. And, and, and so on. And I think that was kind of what gradually led to that. And then obviously my partner's transition was like a huge accelerant in that process. I
0: feel like this is also happening in the backdrop of, um, Marie Kondo, does this bring me joy? Was very popular <laughs> at the <that> time, <laughs> and so we were all walking around our houses, going, "Does this stapler bring me joy?" You know, like, <laughs> so so you were really examining all right. aspects of your life to see, like, how does it sort of hit home? Like, yep. does it does it make your heart sing, or does yep. it make you want to be like, oh, you know? Um, yeah. And so the creative side started to become a bigger and bigger part of not yeah. just what you did, but also how you identified. So you yeah. hadn't previously identified as a creative person. It had been really a suppressed piece of you, but then you started to pick it up. What led to you picking up a camera in particular?
1: So I, I'm not one of those people. A lot of photographers have that stories. Like I was photographing people when I was like two or something like that, like two years old and oh, that. I'm not one of those people. I got my first camera in 2011 as a birthday gift from my partner, like a serious camera and for the first few years i was actually just photographing street like you know wandering around streets or or when i traveled and at some point i realized when i as as an introvert where i realized when i took a, a serious looking camera to parties people don't talk to you because and they think you're there for the pictures they and that was a very good way of controlling how much interaction i could have which was a blessing as an introvert but overall, I was really scared of taking pictures of people. And this is kind of interesting because it's going to tie into some of this other stuff. Because what I realized, when I, even when I did like headshots for friends or like fun photos with friends, I started seeing and people started like, and especially women, but pe- people in general, they have a lot of stuff come up for them when there's a camera in your face. You have body image issues, like how do I look? You have insecurities of other kinds. Your relationship insecurities come up. Everything starts coming up when you have a camera. And that really scared me off at the beginning. I completely swore off, like, you know, I'm not going to never going to do people portraits. I'm only going to do objects and travel and stuff like that for a while. That started changing as. I was exploring this new career and at the same time doing all this work with sex and relationship coaching. I even did a little bit of a basic training as a sex and relationship coach because I was curious to experience the other side of it. And I started seeing the parallels, like everything that comes up for people in front of a camera are exactly the same things that come up for people in relationships and dating and in the bedroom. Those body image insecurities. Am I worthy? Am I perfect? What if, you know, they, someone doesn't like me before because I'm not perfect? Can I express myself fully or not? On the camera, in the bedroom, same things. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. Now I can start using these tools that I've learned in sex and relationship coaching and intimacy coaching to actually make people feel better in front of the camera. And making that connection and starting to explore how I translate that skill set from this one domain to another was what started getting me comfortable doing people portraits as as work.
0: Wow. I mean, it, I feel like you were able to have the camera almost be a tool to help you yeah. like uncover all these layers. Yeah. Um, and it gave you an external way to process it as opposed to it always being about yourself. So it also probably... Right felt a little safer to to kind mm-hmm. of play with that, which also yeah. imbued it with more meaning. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It stopped being like just a passive hobby and something that you really wanted to yes. understand and dive more deeply into, and then you became more invested in it. And at yeah. some point, it the, the scales tipped. Uh, when did you realize you needed to leave your career and focus on this as a business?
1: So pretty much in 2017, the writing was on the wall for me. I was... Uh, in know, in an early stage startup, but I had a very kind of uh, a, a leadership role. Uh, and so I was on, I was a very early employee. I was on track to like, you know, being a leader with that company as the company grew and stuff. But I recognized that that wasn't going to be it for me. I wasn't, this is not what I wanted. And people in my, in my company knew that I had this crazy photography hobby that I was really into. So, but one day I was able to go in and negotiate with the founders of the company and say, hey, I don't think I can, I want this path, but I also know that I'm in a, uh, you know, I'm in an important role in this company and it's very early, so I don't want to leave either. Can we negotiate a part-time arrangement where I work three days a week, so I have time for for this, to build up this second career that I'm I'm dreaming about? And fortunately, they were very supportive, everyone in my company and their company were was very supportive. Uh, so we, we negotiated that, and like this was in mid 2017. I was in that part time role for almost three years and in like early to mid 2020 when you know, COVID happened, and, and it just felt like, all right, I'm this is time to, to leave. And then uh, 2020, end of 2020, 2021, early 2021 was when I became a full time photographer.
0: Man, your 2015 to 2017 was a very interesting time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) i got to say, yeah.
0: (laughs) You moved to to San Francisco. You have all these explorations happening on all these different levels. And it starts to crystallize by 2017. And I love that you gave yourself um, a runway to build up the business part of it by negotiating this part-time role that's genius. Uh, how yeah, did the...
1: It was building on the business and building up the skills, yeah, too. All like there's right. a long, long way to going to being even a good amateur at something, to being a professional who can deliver Indeed. consistently good work. And that takes time to build.
0: How did the pandemic impact your ascendancy as an entrepreneur?
1: So... Before the pandemic, I, you know, when I was trying to figure out like any, like any good solo entrepreneur, you have to figure out a niche and a target audience and all that. Right. And so I did, you know, I was ex- doing all this sex and relationship exploration and, you know, I knew I was becoming a professional photographer and all of that. So how does all that combine? I was like, oh, I'm going to do boudoir photography. I'm just that thinking that. Makes, <laughs> yeah, that makes complete sense. I was sentence, just sitting there right? of course. That's the first thing people say: yeah. though. No, sex and relationships, uh, you know, photography, that's the thing to do. So I did, I started doing that in 20 through 2019. I built up a quite a good portfolio. I was starting to get some good clients and stuff. And then 2020 happened. Obviously, all of that had to shut down completely, especially boudoir photography, which you have to do indoors and, in, you know, enclosed spaces. So I was like, all right, this is this is not going to happen for a bit. Uh, but it also gave me a chance to kind of reflect on my values. And I think that is kind of an important thing for every entrepreneur to do, like, you know, kind of take a step back sometimes and really reflect on the journey and what you've learned. And through 2020, as, you know, we were, go, you know, we were all locked down, it gave me a chance to reflect. And what I realized was, fundamentally, I didn't find that genre, at least the way I was doing it, satisfying. The reason I didn't find it satisfying was that there was, you know, if you think of boudoir photography, you have, you know, this certain idea of like, People can only look sexy, quote unquote sexy, when they are either wearing certain kinds of clothes or like posing in certain like standard poses and all of that. And they're only like obviously certain kinds of bodies that are considered to be more sexy than others. And that's the way that genre is done. Like the idea is you put people in these like lingerie or other kind of outfits or and then make them do certain poses and you try to make them shoot them from angles where they look skinnier or whatever, certain things. And I was like, that's not right. That's not, that doesn't feel right to me because that's not express. If you ask 10 different people, really have a conversation and ask them what their authentic way of being sexy is, you're going to get 10 different answers. And the majority of them are not going to be lingerie. And so I was like, this is not working for me. I need to rethink how I'm doing photography. In 2020, in, uh, in late 2020, a friend of mine who had been a boudoir client before, she uh, started was starting her own business as a coach, and she was like, "Hey, like, I need some branding photos. I need to really express like some things about who I am. So I don't want the traditional branding photos. And I feel like you can do this better for me, and we can do the shoot outdoors." I was like, "Oh, that might be something to explore. Let's try that." I we did that, and I really loved the experience. I was like. Oh, like I got to capture this person and this unique story about this person, and she had a very specific vision for what her branding looked like, and we got to figure out how to align the vision with, with her her vision with, and her story with the photos and do it all outdoors. And uh, I was like, "Yeah, this seems right. This is this is the way I want to do photography," and that's kind of that kind of started the branding photography journey for me.
0: Your story is amazing, and we could probably talk for hours. But as we're winding down. Uh, the interview, I am really looking forward to your answer to my last question, which we're going to hear right after this break. Okay, here's my final question for you. Um, If we're connecting a year from now, and I really do hope that we stay in touch, I want to know what we're going to be celebrating on your behalf. Like, what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead?
1: (sighs) Ah. i am looking forward to having let's see how i can how can i phrase this i want to change people's ideas of what a personal brand is i want people to see personal branding not as a way that they have to go out and look perfect in some external metric or like look you know a certain fit a certain box I want them to know that they can be who they are exactly and still have a kick-ass personal brand. And I want more and more people to like to embrace that idea. And I want to be part of a community of people that that embraces that idea.
0: Love it. I love it. Uh, and I can't wait to help you celebrate all of that success. How can people find you and follow your work?
1: Yeah. So my website is seriesafotography.com. That's the name of my, my business. And uh, I do have a thing I want to give away. Cool. Yeah. So if you go to my website and go to series, and this will be in the show notes, seriesaphotography.com slash free brand audit, free hyphen brand hyphen audit. And, you know, the link will be in the show notes. You can book a free 30-minute brand audit with me. And this brand audit is not about me telling you, like, your brand sucks in these ways. That is not the way I work. But it's going to be more about like, I'm very good at exploring because, because of all the work I've done, recognizing and being, connect, connection, being in connection with, with emotions that I, that I experience. So I'm going to tell you, look at your bra- I'm going to look at your brand and tell you, this, these are the feelings I'm experiencing from your brand. Are those the feelings you want your customer to experience? And that's, for it. me, that's a brand audit. So feel free to book one with me and uh, I'd, be, I'd love to chat with you.
0: We'll put all the links to that you mentioned, as well as your LinkedIn, uh, in chat. Um, we also have your Instagram, um, not in chat, in the show notes. Uh, and I think people should to connect with you in all the ways and reach out to you if they want to have this free brand audit. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciated you taking the time.
1: You're welcome. This was really fun. I hope uh, you had a good time too.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Raj. What's your key takeaway? something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 342. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome! I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance, and look forward to connecting again next week. I'll we'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week.